Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. Hi, everybody. I'm Tom Rickert. And I'm Kristen Johansson. The two of us make Gone Cold together, and we're going to put out a bonus episode today. We will talk about that in a second. But Kristen, I wanted to start out by asking you a few things about the last episode. This was the first time that we've done an episode. And then there was a sort of substantial update to the case after we put it out. And by the way, if you're listening and none of these words mean anything to you, stop here. Go back to the episode called What Happened to Public or Jane Doe. Then listen to the episode called Update Naming Public or Jane Doe. Kristen, I want to throw back the curtain a little bit. You had done all this reporting for the first Public or Jane Doe episode. You talked with Ben Salem Police Detective Chris McMullen about trying to find out who she was for, for the last 20 years. Did you have any idea when we released the first episode that she was going to be identified just a handful of months later? I really didn't. I knew that there was going to be possibly a DNA development, but you don't know that anything's actually going to happen with DNA because you could get the shortest. And I just, you know, this is learning from them and from other DNA experts. You could get like the littlest bit of DNA and it's just not enough for them to push through to something else. So I knew that they were working on the DNA, but I didn't know if that was actually going to become something and if if they were actually going to find out who public or Jane Doe could possibly belong to as far as family members go. But Chris told me in January that they had something, you know, he wouldn't tell me what they had, but he would just want like, you know, we have something, there's a family at least, and now they're working on this family. And I think it was just days later that they really were able to nail down that public or Jane Doe was Lisa Todd. And then they talked to the family and everything and eventually held a press conference when they were ready. But it just goes to show that when it comes to trying to identify victims, for many of these investigators, that is just the primary goal. They wanted to actually give her back to a family and to actually put a name to who this person was. Because, you you know, you don't want, I think anybody that has a family member, you want to be able to properly bury them and have them belong somewhere. They made a, you know, an imprint on this world. And um, so for them, for, you know, Chris specifically, that was the biggest, I mean, that that's probably the biggest thing that has happened in his career, he said, and, and he is thrilled to have finally given her a name and soon being able to give her back to her family. Yeah. And I, I guess theoretically, 
identifying her would have been the first step, no matter what, in figuring out what happened. Now there are, correct me if I'm wrong, but now there are probably more opportunities to figure out who killed her because they know, they know who she is. Yeah, they go, they talked about this a little bit in our other kind of side episode, Jeanette Tamby, um, what happened to Jeanette Tamby, because what they do is they work on victimology, especially when it's that old of a case. And, um, you know, this, God, I'm trying to think of how old I was. I was two or three when, you know, when they found her two or three years old. So like, you know, (laughs) that's 30 years later or so that they're trying to figure out, you know, who this person is. So they don't have back in the eighties, this, this DNA forensic using forensic DNA was kind of a brand new technology. This wasn't something that they thought was going to bubble into what it is now. And so they don't have, you know, they didn't preserve it because they didn't know to preserve it, if you will. So the thing that they have to start with is victimology. Who did she know? Where did she live? What was she doing in life at the time that she disappeared? Did she have any friends that may have known, you know, that she was having problems with somebody? They always look to the closest person to that person. There's a statistic out there um, where basically majority of murders that happen are the person knew the victim um, or the victim knew whoever killed them. That's the most likely scenario. So once they go through the who the victim was and kind of develop this profile of who the victim is, they can work backwards and try and figure it out. So in this case, um, now that they know it's Lisa Todd, they're talking to everybody to try and figure out the life that Lisa Todd led, and maybe that will lead them to whoever was at least the last person to see her alive. Yeah, hopefully. So uh, I think this is probably obvious for people who've listened to a bunch of episodes and hear how you talk about these people that we tell stories about. But for anyone out there who has not picked up on this yet, and uh, KJ, if you don't mind me just talking about you for a second, for for Chris and this, you know, Gone Cold isn't just a podcast. The energy and um emotional capital you put into these stories is is just incredible we we never just put out a story and and then that's it Kristen will keep up with the family and call and text and email with them you know as much as they want basically so uh, all of that being said you you've told me that your bucket list is pretty much having one of these cases we've done get solved that hasn't happened yet but this is sort of the first time that something really significant happened in one of these cases after the fact, you know, identifying Lisa Todd was, was a really big deal. It's a very big deal. And now that you've had some time to process it, I'm, I'm wondering what your, your thoughts are about everything. You know, my bucket list is to get every single one of these cases solved in some way or get some resolution for these families. So I want desperately for Tomine Jones's uh, for her to be found. I desperately want the person who killed Jason Richardson to be brought to justice for that family. I mean, these are people, Carol Reif, I think about her, I think about Don Lee all the time and talk to Nari still. And so I think this is just the first time I've gotten the kind of, I want to say, I'll say taste or understanding of like what that of a family's feeling of some version of 
healing because I will never say closure because they, they'll never have closure. They've all told me that. Um, but they like a little bit of a start of healing to know what happened. And, and as we know, we talked to Linda Todd, Lisa's sister, you know, she said it was like somebody kicking her and punching her in the back at this, kicking her in the back and punching her in the stomach at the same time when she found out that her sister was finally found because she had always wondered, there was always a nagging feeling to her. You know, she went to check prisons. She went to, uh, she made phone calls to hospitals just to check on her. And she's always just wondered what happened to her big sister. And so, you know, just getting their stories, I guess, these victims, just to know that, I guess, somebody still cares that their loved one is gone and that their loved one is not forgotten, I think is the biggest thing for them. Um, even, you know, with some of the kids, we've gun violence raging right now in the city of Philadelphia and, you know, so many kids have been killed. And those parents that I talked to just want somebody to remember their kid, somebody to memorialize their kid or tell their kid's story. They all want justice, but it's it's different for everybody. And so I think for Linda, she kind of mentioned for her sister that she wants it to be, she wants to know what happened to her sister, but she's very satisfied with knowing that what, like that her sister was found, even though her sister was found dead, she's happy to know that there's at least some version of conclusion to what happened to her. Like she didn't know for 30 plus years, you know, what happened to her. And now there's at least something, you know, maybe the, you know, and I'm not going to go digging into their privacy and, and whatever, but you know, maybe she'll get to know her nephew more now, or maybe, you know, cause Lisa had a son, maybe the son will gain an aunt and a cousin and an uncle. And, you know, and I'm not going to go down that road with them. That's up to them, but it's at least, it's at least something, you know, it's at least a little bit of, of a full circle coming around. Yeah. We, we deal so much like these stories are all about families getting ripped apart and uh, I, I don't know if it's going to happen or not, but you know, just having, I guess the opportunity on paper for a family to be put back together is, I don't know. It's a nice thing to think about. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's, let's talk about this episode that we're putting out right now. This is going to be, more or less the full interview you did with Chris McMullen and Yolanda McClary. We used a few segments of the interview for the last episode. So when, when I heard this interview you did the first time, I, I knew that I already wanted to put it out by itself as an extra because I thought it was fascinating. I have trouble getting my head around the DNA stuff, but, but Ancestry.com is, is my jam. You know, like to hear Yolanda talk about how she maps these trees for all these Jane Doe's to try to figure out who they were. I love that. I'm not sure that I've heard like somebody in forensics really talk about how they use it to solve crimes before. And then Chris was able to talk about what happened and how he tracked down her identity. So KJ, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts or, or, or anything before we just get into the, get into the episode. Well, there, there's a couple. So it, this is a very new kind of realm of, of criminology and forensics. Many of the places that you go and you get swabbed like ancestry.com or 23andMe, there was this, the Golden State Killer was really the pinnacle of, of kind of where this all happened. The Golden State Killer, if everybody remembers, is the case that was out on the West Coast where a man was raping and sometimes murdering women and sometimes also their husbands. And the case, it was cold for like 35 years plus. And Finally, there was somebody basically put the DNA back in into a, this database, GEDmatch, where 
it's kind of like a free database for trying to figure out if there's connections. And they were able to link and it took them a long time to figure out. It's not like something, and I mentioned this in there, like it's not like CSI or NCIS where it's, you know, they put the DNA in like a coder and be like, this person pops up. It's much more like trying to build this whole family tree out and figure out the profiles, you know, first going with, okay, who would be the profile of the killer? So then you think about the kill and then like going through the family tree with, okay, do any of these people match that profile? And then weeding out one by one, which is exactly what they did with the Golden State Killer, weeding out one by one who that would not be. You know, in this case with the public database and they talk about it, they had, you know, you take a family tree and they may get back to like fifth or sixth cousins. But I mean, I have a very small family. Tom, I know you have a very large family. You know, I I even drove, remember when I went by and I texted you a picture of Rickert Road and you were like, yep, that's my, that's my, uh, that's my family's place. Pennsylvania, Um, Dutch country. Yeah. Throw a rock and run into a Rickert. Right. So like your family would be a nightmare, right? To like get through trying to figure out because there's a, and they explain a little bit of this, but there's, you know, just this, this little piece of DNA that everybody in your family may have that makes you a record essentially. Well, they have to go through and like build out everybody and go through one by one who that person may be. With victims, it's a little bit easier than with defendants because probably within a family, there may be one or two people that, if if at all, that may be missing. So you can kind of go, if I called you up, hey Tom, do you have anybody missing in your family? You'd be like, no, but maybe I may go to like, you know, another cousin. Well, my aunt Kathy on this side of the family, whatever. Yeah. She had a cousin who was missing and it's like, you could go in that way. But like with this and like speaking to Yolanda, it's a lot of that kind of digging back to the background and trying to figure out and piece together who that person may be. There's just been a lot of cases recently. There was, I think even a dateline on this recently of trying to figure out kind of who these victims are. And I don't think that anybody, I mean, I I can't see the argument. Let me say this. I can't see the, I can't see the argument and not wanting to allow databases to upload for the purposes of finding a victim's identity. I do think that it can be problematic when law enforcement tries to use those databases to find out who defendants are. But I think in when finding Jane Doe's and figuring out who Jane Doe's, I think every person, every human being deserves to be named, deserves to be with someone, deserves to be with their loved ones, you know, in a resting place. So I think the hope is that more of these databases allow law enforcement to use, at least use them to name victims of crime or just people who may not even be victims of crime, but just have no name and they remain Jane and Don, John Doe's for whatever reason, their circumstances. Maybe they died of an overdose or maybe they died of a heart attack and they, you know, in a field or, you know, wherever. And they just need to be named. They need to be back with their family or with somebody. I mean, you and I have been up to Potter's Field, right? So, and that was one of the saddest places in the world. Those are all unnamed victims. We don't, they don't have tombstones. You know, they don't have people putting flowers on their grave for their birthdays or their death days or Christmases or anything like that. So, you know, I hope at least victims can be named like that. I think that's the most important thing to take away from this. So real quick, before we press play on this this interview, you're, we're going to hear three voices. One of them is, is yours, Kristen. Uh, can you just reintroduce everybody to the other two people? 
Yeah, uh, Chris McMullen is the Ben Salem detective who was kind of, you could say, heading the case. A lot of people were involved in, in, in identifying public or Jane Doe, but Chris is the lead. I mean, he's the guy that knew everything about the case beginning to end. He got in touch with his friend, Yolanda McClary, who you may know from that TV show Cold Justice. Yolanda is an investigator, um, lifelong investigator, worked in Las Vegas, and she worked with her team to try and figure out who Public or Jane Doe was based on the DNA that they were given. So it's really Yolanda, you could say, who named her, um, her and her team. She would never say it was just her, but her and her team who named her. So um, speaking, you know, I got Yolanda up. She's on the West Coast and I got her up way early to talk to me. And then uh, <laughs> so um, I really appreciate her time and, of course, Chris's time for kind of explaining how this all happened behind the scenes. Yeah, so, such a good communicator for, for a difficult thing to understand as well. Um, all yeah. right, so so we're going to jump into the interview. Uh, Yolanda McClary is talking about how she started looking for the real name of a Jane Doe, which leads into how they identified Lisa Todd. Um, and that's up right after this. In the doe cases um, that we've done, the doe's bone, because that's typically what we have, will go to a private lab. In this particular case, it went to Bodie. They would drill the bone to get the DNA, so to speak, and it takes a lot of DNA. And when the profile's done, it's like, I'm not even lying, like a million numbers. It's like, if you printed it, it would be like a ream of paper. It's nothing like I've ever seen before. I mean, it kind of blew my mind. And then what you do is you take that profile and you upload it into open source databases. Now, what I mean by open source is this is not Ancestry. This is not 23andMe. Those are private labs, private genealogy places that do not accept uploads. They don't even work with these kind of projects, which I wish they would, but they don't. There's other open source ones and they were created by the genealogy, you know, enthusiasts out there, the people that say, okay, I did my stuff at Ancestry 23 Me, but God, I just want to know so much more about my family or who I uh, connect with. And that's why these databases were open, so to speak, is for these people that get into it so much. Well, the databases kept growing and growing and growing. It was an amazing thing. And that's the places that we go and upload these million numbers, this huge profile that goes in there and tries to connect with people out there. So this is something that I just kind of got into a couple of years ago and I had some great people teach me. I find it a fascinating thing to start building trees, but I was laughing with one of my genealogists, Jean Greer, the other day. We're working on a case right now that is just like, oh my God, it's so difficult uh, trying to find where this girl could lie in this family. And I said, oh, I feel like I'm back on a crime scene looking for a little, you know, 22 bullet in a big old pile of rocks. Uh, <laughs> it's like no different and looking for the tiny little pieces. And that's what genealogy is. It's, it's a mind blower. I think when they think about genealogy, generally they go with, they think of like NCIS, they put in a whatever, and then like the computer comes up and it's like, oh, it's a match. But it's so much more than that with what you have to do with, with um, GEDmatch. Correct. Yes. Yes. No, it's so much more than that. When you upload these profiles, 
it generates, I mean, it could generate, I'm not even kidding, like a hundred matches, but it'll give you the top match first. Okay. The one that gives you that you're the closest related to. They measure everything, like everything in the world gets measured by something, whether, you know, it's an inch, a foot, a yard, right? So in this, it's measured by what they call a centimorgan. It's like you share so many centimorgans of DNA, like say me and you, if, you know, we were connected somehow and we shared like, let's say a hundred centimorgans, that's not super close. You're probably like a third cousin to me. So I got to go way back in your tree like to your second great grandparents and you have eight of them and build all their children all the way down. So by the time you do that, you could end up with 5,000 people in your tree. And then I've got to look at that and compare yours to say another match. Every once in a while you get lucky and you might get a second cousin or a first cousin. What would be beautiful is like a sister, a brother, an aunt, an uncle, something that is just that close that you're looking just in that person's real direct family. Do you see what I'm saying? But it doesn't work out that way. Um, Generally, you are dealing with third and fourth cousins and it's taking you months to build trees and compare them, trying to find that, that marriage, so to speak. Okay. And then, you know, that marriage is a good start of where say your dough is going to be. So when you, um, you and Chris specifically with Jane Doe Publicer, Chris got the actual DNA, or I'm saying you both got, I guess, from Bodhi Technologies. Like, here's here's the um, genetic profile. What then happened? What then transpired? How did you both work together to kind of build out what the tree would be? Uh, Chris, if you remember, Bodhi kind of uploaded her profile, and the matches were so horrible. I mean, they were so horrible; it just wasn't workable, and. Um, Chris, correct me here, but I think, didn't they say that basically this, this case was unsolvable at that point? They, after they, they did the extract and the upload, they said that there was some associations, but they were, I believe, you know, at, at the closest was like fourth cousins. And they had suggested that we just leave the profile there and wait and, um, you know, see if some more profiles come in that, that was my understanding of it. And shortly after that, then you took over. Yeah. So basically me and my partner, he, uh, I love building trees. I love doing that part and working with the genealogists. And my partner loves working with the databases with the profiles and see what can that, you know, what hits and what doesn't. And then he kind of just gives them to us. He was monitoring them and, mo- and constantly, you know, looking like every two weeks to see if there was anything new. And there wasn't. But one of the databases that she was in had just uh, created a new algorithm that constantly changes to the algorithm that help you match other people. So he thought, oh, my gosh, you know what? New algorithms are happening. You know, let's try it. Let's give this, you know, let's take her new algorithm. And he kind of he put it back into GEDmatch to see if it would do better because GEDmatch, after it was sold, they've done a lot of work also to their database, you know, increasing the algorithms, making it better, more user-friendly. So we put her back in with the new algorithm and boom, she hits to one really good match and two others that were a little bit more distant, but that's kind of what you want because it helps us. It helps bring it home. Then uh, Jean, one of my uh, uh, genealogists that works with me, 
her and I hit it pretty hard and we had her solved in about three and a half days. Yes. Yeah, so like I said, when you started building the tree, I really had a hard time keeping up with you. <laughs> I had a hard time keeping up with myself. <laughs> yeah, no, Cause it was like, cause I remember before we found the Todd family, the night before I had contacted a girl named Victoria who lives in Williamsport. That apparently was a, a, a close cousin. And the issue with that was she had been adopted and never knew her biological father. And the association was on that side. So as much, she's a great person. And as much as she wanted to help and um, she, she couldn't point me in the right direction. Now I have spoken to her since, and I believe the association is that her grandmother was sisters with Lisa Todd's mother. Yeah, it, it wasn't. Okay. So it looked like, um, her father that gave her, her, her last name, her mom got married to him when she was very young, like one to two years old. And so she right. just took his name. So it, it was a little bit different, uh, cause Victoria was actually our, our best match. And we kind of quickly realized that Victoria's father that, you know, she had listed was not really her father. So we had to figure out, you know, who her father really was, because that's actually where <laughs> where the tree connected with other other matches that we had. So so we actually took a total of five matches, the top five matches, and we got them to connect really nice and fast and good. And then it was connecting it to Victoria. Um, once we realized who her real father was, then the connection became very, very clear. So, I mean, genealogy can seem complicated. You guys, it's like you you have to, the easiest thing is to follow charts. It's, you know, this is a podcast, so it makes it kind of difficult because you don't have a visual, but basically all you're doing is connecting people. Like if I, if I connect with Chris, you know, like we're, we're cousins, I can put both of us in the same tree. Now we both match her, put us together in the same tree. But what I'm looking for ultimately is marriages into other trees that we are not connecting with, but they are connecting with our dough. It seems complicated and it is complicated. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> it can be very complicated, but it works. And uh, eventually we get to an answer of Lisa Todd. And so, so much of what you do too, I imagine would be record searching too. Like I could be, yes. Cause that to me would be the most fun is like trying to go search for the records, trying to find birth certificates, marriage, whatever. Mm-hmm. Can you just talk about how, like, what part that played of trying to figure out and piece together, like, who's married to who and if they had a deed or, like, what kind of part that was to maybe you're building it out? Well, there is a lot of records. And, you know, Ancestry is great for that, you know, because they have billions of them. They have a lot of records for you to be able to find out, like, who married who on what day, depending on when someone was born. We can get most of their children until... After, you know, once you start hitting the 40s and 50s, because remember, the 40 cents is the last one we have. The 50s is supposed to come out pretty soon. So all of those are helpful if people actually fill them out, of course. But believe it or not, you know, when I say back in the day, you know, I'm talking like early 1900s, 1800s. They really filled out the census records, which was really nice. Um, so we could really see who all their children were. But once you get into the 50s, 60s, sometimes there's records on children. Sometimes there's not, and then you're going to have to go to other sources to try to find with families. But yes, you have to look at records. You have to make sure that you're correct. You have the proof of who married who, because some people will put names in there and it's completely wrong. They didn't marry each other at all. And those then, of course, you know, 
that that person's tree is going to be screwed up and incorrect. But <laughs> we like to dig for records and just make sure we have the right records. And then do you do you call people and Chris, I guess, I don't know if this is where you come in, but do you call people and say, do you have a missing cousin or father or? In a nutshell, yeah, that's exactly what I did. Although I, you know, that that's that's the quick version. That with, with Victoria, I had originally tried to contact who was listed at her father, who we then found out eventually was not her biological father. But I did speak with him. He was a real nice guy. He's actually a uh, he was a police officer, and he he, you know, he told me he said that he wasn't her biological father, and he had married her mother when uh, Victoria was very young. Um, unfortunately his wife had, uh, passed away, but, um, he got me in touch with Victoria and, and, uh, I spoke with her and, um, you know, she just, you know, she, she couldn't, she had no knowledge of a missing relative. It wasn't until the next day when, uh, things really started to, uh, fall into place. And so now picking up to move forward, we know that Jane, that public of Jane Doe had like what happens next? What's the next move to try and figure out, I guess, or complete the family tree? Well, I think for right now, it's it's all about a bunch of DNA testing, um, right, Chris? So we can make sure that we know the dynamics of what's going on. I mean, when we figured out this was, we didn't know it was Lisa. We knew this was the family. We had her mom and her father. And we knew they had children because we found at least two. Um, we found her brother and her sister. So that's when it came to, okay, Chris, we definitely think this is your family. You're the family you're looking at. We definitely think this is it, but now, you know, you need to call and see if they are missing somebody. And he did get a hold of the brother. You know, he was great to talk to. I mean, Chris can talk about all of that, but then the next steps on what you're saying is we would have to, I like to finalize this by having someone from the family give their DNA. And now we are going back to traditional DNA. Okay. Not genealogy type DNA um, where we do a comparison of the DNA that we do have from our dough and then the DNA from say um, a brother or a sister or a parent to make sure that we are right and that we are in the right family. And sure enough, our dough did match to the brother as a sibling. And he told us who her name was because she disappeared as a teenager. So you have to think about it. She never established, you know, like you and I have established our names out there. You know, you, we can, you can find me and I can find you, but this girl died as a teenager. So she never got her name established. So there was really nothing much about her out there. Yeah. There was no credit history. Um, you know, running our social security number. If we had known at the time, you know, probably wouldn't have really shown much employment history or anything like that. So from here, like, I mean, I guess for both of you, what are those calls like to say, Hey, guess what? Do you do them together? Do you, I guess it's just kind of Chris, right? Yeah. This is where I say, Chris, you're up to bat. The way it happened. I remember it was, it was January 15th and it was late in the afternoon. And uh, Yolanda, you would call me and said, check your email. There's a, there's a couple names on there and your doe is the sibling of these two people. Yeah. And that was Linda and Joseph. Yeah. Uh, so I started trying to track them down um, using various databases that we have. And 
couldn't get a, a working phone number for either of them. I had a couple addresses that were in Philadelphia, but then I started um, building off of them. The databases also show relatives. So I, I had found the daughter of Joseph and um, I called the number and left a message. And shortly after she called me back and I explained to her who I was and, and I, I laid it all out for her. And I said, uh, you know, with all that being said, did, did your father ever have anybody that, that disappeared that was his sister? And she paused and she said, yeah, he had a sister that disappeared in, in the 80s. And I said, okay, I need to speak with your father. And she said, he's on his way home. And 20 minutes later, he called me and uh, he was very upset. And I, I told him who I was and I got his address and I went down to see him. And he told me about Lisa. He told me... Uh, she had disappeared in the fall of 85. I uh, even showed him some of the photographs, the jewelry that were found with uh, our Jane Doe. And he recognized the two rings as belonging to Lisa. Um, we took his DNA that evening. We took a couple buckle swabs, which were, and we also got them from his sister, Linda. And they were compared to Jane Doe. And it came back as being first degree relatives, siblings. And uh, he, he was so upset. He just, you know, I mean, I hit him like a storm. I mean, he, certainly it's understandable. He was, uh, unfortunately, you know, their parents had already been, uh, were already deceased. So mother and father died not knowing what happened to Lisa. That's so sad. But I guess in the end, for both of you, this is, there's a little bit of comfort in knowing what happened. Like Linda had told me that she had heard from somebody that, maybe I went down to talk to Linda. She told me like somebody had told her that maybe Lisa was in a wheelchair at a Camden County correctional facility. So she like went to go see. And so there was always, I guess, this wondering, that was a few years ago, of course, but there's always this like wondering. So what does it feel like for both of you to kind of go, okay, this is Lisa and we know who she is. You know, it is emotional. It is difficult. I mean, even for us, when we, when we get there and we know we're there, we know we're in the right family, you know, on one hand, um, you know, you have two kinds of emotions going, you know, one, you're so grateful that you figured out who she is and you can send her home, which is ultimately why I do this. Um, because I want to send them home. I don't think anybody deserves to die without your name to be just thrown somewhere in hopes of never being found, which is what really happens with most of your does. That's why they're in cornfields. That's why they're in places that they're the hope by the suspect is they'll simply just never be found. I don't think anybody deserves to die period, but not to die that way. So, you know, there's two different emotions, you know, on one, you're kind of jumping up and down, you know, this is great. You know, we can finally send her home, but you know, then there's that, that other side. Um, the other side of um, it's, it's sad. It's sad for the family. Many times I think they have this little hope that even though they haven't heard from them in years, there is always, always this hope that they're still alive and they're still out there and that they're doing well um, for whatever reason, why there's no contact with the family. There's always that hope that they are still alive. And so it's hard. It, it's hard for them to hear the words that they've been deceased for years and then to learn how they died, you know, that's like a, a second huge blow. Um, so this is such a double-edged sword. Like I said, on one hand, it's such a great thing to send them home. And I think ultimately the family, 
is happy knowing the truth. But um, there's a lot of pain, a lot, a lot of pain involved, a lot of tears uh, that you can literally feel when you listen to them. It, it just hits you right in your soul. I, I would totally agree with you on that. It's, it's very bittersweet. You know, I, you know, just for me, when I, when I realized that I, that you had pointed us in the right direction and that we had found her. And when I first spoke to the Todd family and I said, you know, what was her name? And they said, Lisa, you know, after, after 19 years of trying to figure out who this Jane Doe was, now she was Lisa. And I was, I was thrilled because, you know, we finally had, had identified her, but um, for the family and Kristen, like you said, yeah, Linda did say that she, she had, she had made a, a lot of calls to prisons because, you know, saying is my sister there or, or various institutions because um, just looking for her thinking that maybe she was somewhere and unable to contact her family. So, you know, in, in that evening when I met with Joseph, I mean, you know, the, the, he was happy, but he was devastated at the same time. You know, it's, it's a very, and even with, with Lisa's son, um, you know, I, I really feel bad for him. And, you know, he, he's a great guy. They're all great people, but I, he, this is a guy that, you know, from the time he was about two years old, he, he never knew what happened to his mother. And now, thank God he, he has some closure, but it's a, it's a, I think it really complicates the grieving process. You know, it's, it's, it's such a, a you know, a, a difficult situation, but at the end of the day, like Yolanda said, at least now she can go home. She can have a, a proper final resting place with her name on it rather than be, you know, in our evidence lockup as a Jane Doe. And, and she deserves that. All right, that's it for, for this interview. We hope you enjoyed that. We, we want to put out some more extras like that in the future. So uh, let us know what you think. Yeah, and Tom, I meant to tell you this. Uh, last week, I believe it was, I spoke to, I got so interested in this entire genealogy and the way this forensics work. Uh, I ended up calling the New Jersey State Police and having their forensic DNA analyst talk to me about DNA. Now it gets really complicated, obviously, so I'm trying to work that out as an extra episode so we can like kind of explain it in a way that people understand DNA and how you can get to the genealogy piece of it. But it'll be really technical and really sciencey. And um, you know, I sit in court and I listen to this stuff sometimes, and I I've listened to it for years now. I sometimes still don't understand it, but I'm gonna try and put it in a little piece that allows people to understand. Well, I feel like if you can explain it to me, then you can probably explain it to anybody. Yeah, we'll see if that works out. We'll see how it works. Uh, all right, so I'm excited for that. Uh, if you're still listening, it means that you like Gone Cold. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. We appreciate your support for the podcast. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, we'd love it if you left a review to help get the show out to new listeners. You can follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at Gone Cold Philly. Instagram is Gone Cold Philly. And you can join the Facebook group as well. Just look for Gone Cold Philadelphia Unsolved Murders. I'm Tom Rickert. I make Gone Cold with Chris and Johansson. You can follow me on Twitter at T-Rick, T-E-E-R-I-C-K. KJ, where can they get a hold of you? Where can they see what you're working on? I'm on Twitter at Kristen Johansson. And then I'm also on Facebook, Kristen Johansson, KYW. All right. Uh, so we'll have another episode out uh, at some point in the near future. We won't make you wait too, too long. But this was fun. And thank you so much for listening.
Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.